Hi there, thanks for tuning in to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast gets under the skin of leaders from the top of big business, charities, arts organisations and beyond. I explore their success and failure, the big decisions they must take every day and how they made it to the top. Navigating the coronavirus crisis requires great leadership, so I'm particularly grateful to those leaders willing to talk while we're still in the thick of it. This is the third in a short run of one-on-one conversations talking about how COVID-19 has changed the game and how to lead through and out of this crisis. My guest this episode is Matthew Chamberlain. He's the Chief Executive of the London Metal Exchange, a city institution since 1877 that last year traded $13.5 trillion of metals, including aluminium, copper and zinc. We talk about trading through the crisis, asking for advice and respecting tradition. I began asking Matt how his organisation was coping at the moment. Well, you know, I, I think we are very fortunate Uh, as a business in that we do have the ability to work from home, that our colleagues have the ability to work from home. Uh, And obviously, you know, first and foremost, that really uh, makes you you extremely grateful and extremely cognizant of the the huge efforts that key workers are putting in to to help the country pull through this. So I think we start from a position of being, you know, immensely fortunate and and obviously, you know, commensurately you're grateful for for the huge amount of work that people are doing, you know, to to keep the country safe. Looking at the LME itself, I think there is, you know, you know clearly, you know, we're not as in any way as important as the NHS or the security services, but we do as much as possible during this time want to keep the metals markets functioning effectively because they are important for the economy. And we very much hope that after uh, this terrible time, you know, hopefully that we will be able to come out of lockdown globally and and there will be a path to rebuilding uh, economies. And, and a lot of that hopefully will be driven by be driven by infrastructure, will be driven by uh, the industrial sector, and be driven by metals. So, you know, we're doing everything we can, you know, in, in our small way uh, to keep the metals market working effectively um, so, that, so that we do have that continuity. And if I look at what our biggest challenge was, um, you know, what, what we had to do uh, is that we, we have a physical trading floor. We're one of the last, or actually the last, European exchange that has that physical trading floor. And in mid-March, we sort of looked at where the world was going. We looked at uh, the, the development of the pandemic. And, and that was, if you'll recall, when, when it was sort of really starting to become uh, a big thing in, in the UK. And it was pretty obvious that we were headed towards a situation where the government would, would have to lock people down uh, you know, for public safety. Uh, and we said it's not going to be possible to keep uh, floor trading going, um, it just wouldn't be responsible for us to, you know, to, to have people in that close proximity. Um, and so we did, in a, a short period of time, need to make preparations to take that very vibrant, very active uh, floor trading that happens in person with, with traders sort of shouting and, uh, and, and doing deals uh, and, and move that onto our electronic market. So, so that was really the big challenge that that we had as an organization. Uh, and I was really proud of how our people, uh, our members uh, and their staff 
were able to deal with that. You know, we're able uh, to ensure that that we were able to to, to move the business across to the electronic market uh, in a, a very stable and orderly way. And uh, you know, it's a I think a, a good testament to what people can do you know, when they're yeah. when they're working together towards that common goal. So sending everyone home, I think there are about four hundred and fifty staff at the LME, and then putting that physical open outcry dealing onto electronic platform. But apart from that, you you didn't miss a beat and you remained open. I, I think actually that that's even better than the LME did during World War II when I think it had to shut down. Yeah, that, that's right. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is, you know, uh, I suppose it, it's sort of commensurate with the scale of, of the national challenge that, that we're facing with, with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, that you're right, you know, the last time that we had this kind of interruption to floor trading was during the Second World War. Uh, now, obviously, back then, there were a lot of other things going on. And, uh, and you know, to a large extent, government took responsibility for pricing of commodities. So, so there wasn't really a need for the LME during that period. Um, but, but you're right, you know, we, we have been trading on the floor you know, ever since we came back. Uh, and it does really, really emphasize you know, just what the scale of, uh, of the, uh, the challenge that the nation is facing now, that it's been that period of time uh, before we've had to lock down again. Yeah. And how have you found it? Because, I mean, you talk about this, the open outcry pit, the ring is something LME is famous for. It's, it feels like quite a tactile business. You can walk around the, the building normally and see, uh, you know, see people shouting at each other and take the temperature. It must be very different for you to to, to run the thing from, from your computer screen. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think you you really notice and you're talking to colleagues and, and friends really you know in, in across uh, different business areas um, you really recognize the human element of the working environment you know many of us just always took that for granted you know certainly I did I, I never really appreciated just what a human buzz I got out of being in the office, out of talking to colleagues, you know, they meant many of whom are good friends, talking to our clients, traveling internationally, seeing the, the countries where the metal is produced, where the metal is consumed. I just really took that for granted. Matt, what would you say about the, the the broader business at the moment then? If you're sending everyone home, what is the market like? Because if you look at the stock exchange volumes, you know, volatility is good for business, right? Yeah, so, so certainly all, all exchanges, be they stock exchanges, be they commodity exchanges, do tend to see higher volumes during volatile periods, as, as we definitely saw in the first quarter. Uh, and that, that makes sense because our business is all about helping people to, to manage risk. And therefore, you know, we're able uh, to, uh, to process those volumes uh, and, you know, because there's a lot of people who, who, who want to manage more risk during, during a, a time of volatility, as you'd expect. Now, what we've now seen as we go into April, certainly in the in the metals markets, is that there's a bit more stability. And that's because people are sitting on the sidelines. Uh, they're saying they don't really know where the global economy is going to go. You know, clearly, many countries are in recession, uh, but it would take a, a very wise commentator to call how deep that recession is. Or how long it's going to last. And without knowing that, it's hard to know what the demand is going to be for metals because they are so fundamentally linked to our global economy. And so you have a lot of people who are just going to be sitting on the sidelines. And that does mean that we'll need to, to wait and see over the next few months. So I think it'll be a quieter market for the next few months until we see uh, how, how and when countries are 
uh, going to uh, come out of lockdown and hopefully uh, return to a degree of industrial normality. So what's your job then there as the leader sat it, sat in the middle of that, making sure that there is as much as possible normal conditions, the liquidity that your customers expect, and, and also to reassure your colleagues? Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, I think running an exchange, you do have a, a responsibility, you know, clearly to your to your staff, to your colleagues, like in any business, um, you know, to help them through this difficult time to make sure that we can adjust working conditions to reflect the additional burdens that people have, particularly around childcare or caring responsibilities, um, and, and to provide a degree of reassurance. You know, given that you know, naturally, uh, you know, everybody is uh, is worried about the uncertain times in which we live. But but then I, I think there's this broader responsibility that exchanges have to their markets to provide a degree of certainty to the traders, the investors, the risk managers who rely on us. So for example, we do, you know, it was important to provide a degree of certainty that even though we were transitioning away from our ring, away from our floor trading, that we would be able to provide that continuity of pricing that the industry relies on. You know, similarly, if you look at the way that our contracts are delivered, uh, when an LME contract comes to maturity, there is a physical transfer of metal. And that metal can be sitting in a port in many places around the world, many of which are, are facing their own challenges with the pandemic. So what are our contingency plans in the event that there are uh, that there are port closures or that people can't work in a particular geography? And you're never, as a leader, going to have all the answers. You're never going to be able to give 100% reassurance. But what I've found is that if you stand up and say, here are the steps we've taken, here are our contingency arrangements, but let me be honest, here are the things that I just don't know. That is what people want to hear. They don't want to hear that you can solve problems when you clearly can't. They want to know that you're doing your absolute best to provide that certainty to the market. So honesty and transparency, that, that might catch on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I think in many ways, even before the impact of the pandemic, there was certainly, in, in my view, a change in the way that capitalism was operating. You know, I think a lot of the challenges that we've had around environmental and sustainability, which have you know, clearly uh, gathered huge force in the last couple of years, they do go to that point about transparency. So, you know, maybe just to give you know, to give an example of that, to kind of wind back and talk about you know, the, the world before coronavirus, we had uh, a very significant question at the LME about the responsible sourcing of metals. So, you know, we, we trade a lot of metal on the exchange and increasingly our end users, our customers, the people who buy things made out of metal were asking questions of the supply chain of can you show me that where this metal came from was an ethical supply chain, that it didn't drive conflict financing or, or worst forms of child labor or, or the other abuses that, that you know, we wouldn't want to see. You know, so, so I think even before the pandemic, we, we were seeing that increasing consciousness uh, from users of our market about the conditions in which things were produced. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Openness and transparency is, is the best way to begin to solve that because you can at least tell people, this is what we know about the supply chain. This is what we don't know, but we're going to go and try and find out for you um, so that uh, you can start to, to address those very valid concerns. 
And is the supply chain fixed now? From you're happy with it? Maybe just to, to just highlight some of the, the the challenges there and some of the very real ethical questions. So if we look at cobalt, so cobalt is uh, a relatively small LME metal, but cobalt is absolutely crucial because it is used for batteries, particularly for electric vehicles. But cobalt you know, comes from some areas of the world that have some real development challenges, particularly the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And so the challenge that we set ourselves was how can we ensure that the cobalt that's traded on the LME, say, does have that ethical supply chain? You know, because when I first went into this, you know, I said, well, the obvious thing is just take these countries out of the supply chain. We should only get our cobalt from countries that can show that they have you know, programs against child labor and monitoring, et cetera. And, you know, but you sit down with the NGOs, so I say I've done far more work on this topic than, than, than we have, and they point out, well, that's probably the worst thing to do. Because what you're saying is that those countries and the people in those countries don't have the right to use their metal, to use the what's in, in their ground to deliver economic empowerment and economic growth. So it becomes far more complex. It's about verification. It's about the industry schemes, uh, the independent assurance of those showing that the supply chains, as I say, isn't using worse forms of child labor. It's not, not conflict financing. And I'm really proud of that because it's an important first step in saying, A, that we have responsibility as an industry for this. We can't just sit back and ignore it. And secondly, although it won't solve every problem, it will make the world better than when we started. And I think that's really our mission, is to help make things better one step at a time. Seems quite a big ongoing challenge for you. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I say, you know, it's not going to stop there. You know, the, the, we've really just scratched the surface, uh, I say, around uh, supply chains, and in particular, their, their impact on, on human development. Um, but then, as I mentioned earlier, and kind of coming back to the electric vehicle element, you've got the environmental angle as well. So, you know, metals in general are good at helping build things that are more environmentally responsible, but obviously they have an environmental footprint of their own. They're highly energy intensive. There are just so many fascinating policy questions of how the world is going to develop. Uh, and, you know, I'm absolutely not saying that anybody, least of all the LME, has the answer. But, but I do think as a society, we are getting increasingly good about having those conversations about, about that openness and transparency that you mentioned earlier. And then what we want to do as a business is to reflect those as much as possible in our policies, in our rules, which obviously then apply to the whole sector, um, because you know that's that's got to be a good thing in, in helping us make those small steps towards a better world. What's your style of getting things done, Matt? Well, so, so you know, I find that the whole question of, of, of leadership, et cetera, a fascinating one, you know, because I... I started as an investment banker, as a mergers and acquisitions banker, and I loved my time there. But I would say, you know, with, with the greatest respect to my, my friends who are still in that industry, that mergers and acquisitions and investment banking, it's not the best place to learn leadership, to learn management, because it is still a quite individualistic culture uh, or small teams to come together to, to, to drive a particular uh, deal and, and, and then sort of fall apart. And so I have to say that until I moved to the LME, 
back in 2012, I had really no conceptualization of what it meant to manage, let alone lead. It just wasn't a skill that I had ever developed uh, or that anyone had ever tried to develop in me. So I had a really steep learning curve coming into an organization in the LME that is immensely proud of its history, that has some fantastically talented people, uh, many of whom work at the LME um, you know, because they fundamentally respect the institution, they love the role in the market, uh, and they love, that, that, you know, that they love being involved in that. And you very quickly, you're saying, I very quickly learned that management leadership, you know, it's not just a transactional thing, which is what I had probably perceived through the first 10 years of my career, that it's really about people themselves wanting to contribute to a better business, wanting to contribute to the success of the business and the success of the market and empowering that. What I learned very quickly and what I continue to try to learn and try to remind myself of is that you know it's about helping people realize their own visions you know for why they're working in this organization what makes them proud to work in this organization and helping them push forward their agendas because that, that's how organizations grow is because the people who are actually working there want things to get better well, seeing as you've gone into the backstory, I'll just mention it. You had that very classic city career, if you like, the um, you know financial analyst, M&A, Citibank, Perella, Weinberg, and UBS. And then something changed in 2012, not just the acquisition of the LME by Hong Kong Exchange and clearing, although I don't know, I don't know whether your move over was linked to that in some, in some way, Matt, part of a grand plan, but then you did switch into, into a strategy role. So you were obviously thinking, uh, you, were you thinking, I need to get experience of management, I need to broaden myself out or, or something? What, what, was the, what was the thinking? Yes. So uh, you very kindly gave me a, a lot of credit for having planned everything. I did. Uh, in that introduction. But, but the, the, one, the, the one thing I've learned is that many careers, particularly my career, um, has been, been driven by, frankly, a lot of chance and a lot of luck. And my move to the LME is, is a great example of that. So, uh, you know, the LME uh, had come up for sale uh, at the end of 2011, and uh, I was working at UBS at the time, and we were advising another exchange, a US exchange, on potentially buying the LME. And our client put in a bid in the first round and you know, didn't get through to the second round. And actually, um, at that time, uh, yeah, I'd been, been sort of working pretty hard on that deal and, and hadn't taken much holiday. So um, uh, my, my wife and I headed down to France. Uh, my, my, wife, my wife is French, so I don't get a lot of choice on where we go on holiday. <laughs> um, and uh, so we, we, we went down to France. And I got a call on holiday from some people at UBS who said, oh, Hong Kong Exchange are keen to look at the LME and they'd really like to meet in London. And I said, well, that's great. But the problem is I'm in France. That's not London. And uh, I kind of promised I'd take a little bit of time off and I don't want to go back on that. And, you know, it's sort of one of those kind of crossroad points in your life, because right up until the evening of um, uh, of that meeting, I really wasn't sure whether I wanted to go back to London. And in the end, you know, kind of conscientiousness got the better of me. Uh, so I jumped in the car, drove to, drove, you know, three hours to Lyon, got the first flight back and, and, and met the team from Hong Kong Exchange. And, you know, if I hadn't done that, I would really never have got to know them 
to help them have the honor of advising them uh, on the second round of, of the LME process, which they eventually won. And then, uh, you know, th them very kindly asking me to join and, and help with the integration uh, and the strategy. And, and I wouldn't be working, I guess, eight years, nine years later uh, with, with the same people who have always been, you know, so supportive for me and my career. You know, it is strange to think that it's those very tiny decisions that can send your career off, send your life off in a whole new, a whole new direction. But it's quite a risk as well, isn't it, that? Because the joy, I'm sure you'll tell me there are many joys of being an investment banker, Matt, but one of the joys is you can advise on the big deal, you can affect the marriage, if you like, and then you can walk away you know, at the end of it. Um, you don't have to integrate and, and make the thing work in the way that you might have um, said that it would, you know, when you were pushing the deal. I don't know. Is that how, is that how it works? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is that is absolutely, absolutely accurate. Uh, so so when uh, uh, when I was offered the opportunity to come on board, the pitch was very much, yeah, you can you can now prove the uh, all of the, the bold statements that we made during the deal. You can come and actually deliver them. I, I wouldn't have done that for many organizations, but I did do it for HKX because I, I fundamentally uh, respect and uh, the, the HKX business and people who work there. And I would do it for, for the LME because the tradition and the prestige of the LME is such that you know, it was just an opportunity that was was too good to miss. So I was willing to take that risk mm. uh, for, for the right set of people. And since we're on the CV track, I'll carry on uh, with that now. I've got other things to ask you. But so in the space of five years, um, uh, you've gone from head of strategy implementation to helping them get the deal done. Uh, next thing you know, at the age of 34, you're the boss. To what degree, as you've already said, I've given you far too much credit. So um, were you in the right place at the right time there? Or was all, this all part of some master plan? No, no I, I think, again, very much kind of right place, right time. You know, I, I, again, one of one of the reasons that, that I've enjoyed working for, for HKX LME um, is that I think as an organization, we are quite good at giving people shocks, right? So, you know, if you're in the business and you're willing to take on responsibility, you know, you can prove yourself. Um, and, uh, and that means that if a, a job comes along, even if, you know, as a candidate on the street, you, you, know, you might not look like the obvious choice, um, because you've had the opportunity to credentialize yourself internally, uh, people will give you that chance. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's something that I, I really, you try to bear in mind when I'm now managing the organization is that I, I think I have an obligation having benefited so much from the willingness of um, you know, my bosses to, uh, to give me a shot uh, you know, when, when I wasn't the safe pair of hands, when I wasn't the, the obvious candidate, you know, I, I, uh, they were taking a degree of risk. I, I try and apply that lesson as well. You know, because you know, we are a small organization. It's harder for small organizations to give internal mobility. I think you know, anyone who works for a small organization, anyone who, uh, anyone who manages one, knows it's much harder in an organization of 500 people to give people that upward room than it is in a mega bank of, of 100,000 people. So you, know, you have to be very conscious, I think, of, of giving people that shot and saying, look, you may not be you know, the obvious fit from a CV perspective, but, but you know, you're committed, 
you're dedicated, you want to make it work, you're smart, you know, give it a shot. We worried that, um, not just the not just the age thing, but there's a, a lot of people either inside an organisation like LME or certainly the customers that you deal with, there'll be a lot of people older than you, ingrained, have been involved for, for, for decades in the institution and so on. Was there concerns from your point of view about getting them on side, getting their respect and so on, or did you just think, I'll do it my way and they can fall into line? Yes, <laughs> so, uh, that's a great question. I, I think I've been I, I've been helped by the fact that my style, my natural style, is quite intellectually curious. I love understanding how things work, how businesses work, how processes work, and I am very willing to ask questions uh, and, and learn. So to to a certain extent, that's worked very well with an industry where, as you say, there's a lot of people uh, who have been in it for many decades. I mean, actually, a lot of LME ring dealers uh, will have started on the ring at the age of 16, uh, clerking, moved up to trade. Uh, you know, probably done very well out of that, then moved to, uh, into the office and moved upstairs and, and become the MD of the franchise. And, and, you know, have a huge amount of experience in the market. But, you know, I don't see that as a conflict because, you know, I I want to learn from those people, right? You know, I, I, I want to understand their perspectives, their history. And, and you know, I do love, I do love history generally. And I particularly love the history of, uh, of the organization that I run. You know, the, there's nothing more fun than going into the archives and looking at the old ledgers and, uh, and the old, you know, how things used to work you know, 50, 100 years ago. It is just absolutely fascinating um, how, how many things have changed, how many things have stayed the same. So, you know, if you're willing to go and learn from the people around you, then ages, you know, there's not going to be that much of an age barrier. Uh, because because you you're going to try to assimilate information from from everyone around you. But what about and what about the skills you've soaked up in that? In that, I'll I'll move on. But that five year window is very interesting. That you you come in from the uh, Mister Investment Banker and then CEO five years later. There must have been a lot of skills you soaked up as well as the stuff in the archive. And then who, who's helping you out in the organisation? Yeah. So so yeah, I've been you know, very lucky to have you know a, a lot of. Uh, people who who've mentored me, uh, you know, particularly during those five years, and and you know, no one more uh, so than uh, uh, Brian Bender, so Brian Bender, who who was our, our chairman through through really all of that time, uh, and was chairman when I took over as CEO as well. Um, you know, it's only I think when you become uh, the CEO that you you realise just how important that chairman CEO relationship is, uh, and having a Having a chairman who is willing to give you the benefit of of what they've seen throughout their career is you know is hugely important. Um, and, and so you know Brian, you know, together with with many other people, um, you know, have been extremely extremely helpful because you're right. You know, I, there's a lot of skills I had to build. You know, the, the leadership skills that we we discussed earlier, uh, but you know, frankly, also skills of of listening, of compromise, um, of of learning. You know, that you may not associate always with the finance profession uh, are ones that are, are very important when you're running a, a market business. And it seems fairly meteoric, but what, what's gone wrong? What could have gone better? So, so you know, I, I think like like all leaders, you know, you, you, the, the, there's so much that you look back on and you say, you know, I could have made this decision differently. I could have made that decision differently. You know, for, for, for me, the, the biggest challenge that I've had at the LME is really driving 
product growth. Um, and, you know, th there is this sort of huge, sometimes frustration of, of being in an exchange because most exchanges make most of their money off the contracts they've been trading for years, right? I mean, we've been trading, uh, you know, copper and tin at the LME since 1877, right? You know, aluminium, which is our sort of relative newcomer, uh, has been trading since 1978. Is that all? So it's very hard to... <laughs> uh, exactly, yes. You could probably remind some of the old guys, Matt, that you weren't born in 78 when they started trading aluminium. Exactly. So, so in many ways, we are stewards of those contracts. I can't take a lot of credit for them, right? You know, we keep them going. But what everyone who works in exchange wants to do is to get new contracts going. But that's tough, right? You've got to bring people, you know, you've got to bring a lot of people and get them aligned at the same time. And, you know, we've made some progress, I think, particularly with our, our steel suite. So historically, the LME has been non-ferrous. Uh, so, uh, you know, we tried to get more into steel and we've made some, you know, we've made some good progress, but we've had a lot of failures along the way. Uh, a lot of contracts that we launched that, 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 that didn't work out. But, you know, I think when it comes to failure, um, and, you know, th there is a kind of failure that clearly gets you fired. And fortunately, we haven't had any of those. But there is a type of failure that you that actually, I think, is very positive. You learn from. And, you know, what I've what I've always felt throughout my career is that if you've got a great management team, a great set of colleagues, as I'm, I'm privileged to have, and you've sat down in the room and you've thought through all the angles and you made the right decision at the right time, we're going to launch this contract or go into that market, you know, you've got to back that. And you know what? It might be the world changes. It might be that your data was wrong. And you can go back and analyze that. But you've got to have the confidence in yourself and your team to back your decisions. And you know what? If you fail, you've learned and you move on. And I actually think that kind of creative failure um, is something that, that that we should embrace. You know, it, it is it's how we learn and it's how we evolve. You must, but as you say, there's only so many times you can creatively fail before someone uh, might call you out. If I can just characterise 2017 as this is what this was the moment you you came in and you've talked about the need to to grow and that sort of thing. And reading back, it feels like even though you had this heritage going right back to 1877, there were aspects of the exchange that were quite uh, feels like underdeveloped. I mean, you you came in. I think there was a problem with falling volumes there was kind of a crisis of confidence what does the modern lme stand for and you had to find new volumes new participants new products and uh, and there seemed to be this battle between um the old contracts that you've talked about these are the where the, the daily price is set in the ring and the open outcry for the metal that's delivered uh, three months later and then uh, on the flip side of that was this demand for these these new products, if you like, the one-month futures contracts, which are very much more the sort of thing that a financial trader uh, would uh, would recognize and be much more comfortable trading. And it feels like since then you've had to, you know, throw a lot more wood on the fire, but also tread a fine line between those two those two sides. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, in many ways, this comes back to it comes back to heritage and, and to history. And you know, the LME is a metals market. And when we opened in 1877, uh, I'd say the two products were, were copper, which had to be shipped from Chile, which took three months uh, back then before they'd opened the Panama Canal. And the tin had to be shipped from uh, what was then Malaya. Uh, and we had the Suez Canal, but but it still took three months. So, so the LME's history has always been about that 
constant. The ship would leave Valparaiso and would get to London three months later. So we'd always had that, that rolling three-month approach to the world. Um, whereas, uh, again, you know, looking back into the history, if you look at the U.S. markets, the U.S. markets really grew up around agriculture. Uh, and so it was much more seasonal. It's about you would plant your crop and your crop would grow. And so you had particular months where your, your grain, et cetera, would be delivered. And so the U.S. markets grew up uh, with much more of a, a monthly uh, a, a approach. So, so we were about a three-month rolling uh, calendar and they were about a, a fixed set of, of months. Uh, and so what we tend to find is that the industrial business that grew up in Victorian Britain around the LME and then kind of really got exported to the rest of the world, that physical business that's core of what we do, they love the structure that we have. Whereas, you know, when we go over to you know, New York or Chicago and we talk to a lot of the investment community out there who are much more used to that US style monthly futures market, they say, you know, we, we love metals. It's a really exciting investment proposition. But you know, your market structure, they, they have a nice, nice set of adjectives. They don't say it's, it's strange or they might say it's quaint or different or, or um, differentiated. But, you know, you often get the answer. You know, your structure is, is, is too complex for us, uh, for us to get involved in. So, you know, th there is this, this tension. Uh, and that was very much apparent in 2017. Um, and when you layered on top of that, the fact that we denutualized in 2012, and I don't think any business in any sector can denutualize without raising a whole bunch of questions around how much it should be charging, you know, who it's there for, because you know, effectively you know, you, you, your users used to own you uh, and now they don't. And there's, there's going to be a change in the relative balances. So, you know, th there were a lot of issues, a lot of very complex issues that had sort of come to a head and collided by 2017. Um, and uh, you know, just going back to the point you raised earlier about about how we how we learn from people in our market, you know, I, I think the realization I really had to come to in 2017 is I didn't have a clue, right? I just didn't know enough, despite having worked at the LME for four years. So you could argue that maybe I hadn't been doing my homework, but I just didn't know enough to know what was right and what was wrong and what was up and what was down. So you know, we did take uh, a pretty you know, a step at the time that, that a lot of people warned me not to, which was to kind of be open about that and go out to the market and put out a discussion paper and say, you know what, we don't really know how this market structure should look. We've got some good ideas, we've got some you know some some paths we could pursue, but frankly, we need you, our traders, our members, our warehouses, our physical customers to tell us how are you using the LME? Because that's just not a discussion we'd ever had. So, so I was really lucky that people engaged with that because if it hadn't, I would look like a great you know, massive idiot and, and probably wouldn't be here anymore. But but the fact that people were willing to, to take that in the spirit was intended and say, yeah, we should do this, that. Didn't always agree uh, with, every, with all of it and people didn't even agree with each other. But we were able to craft a strategy that navigated through that and actually has kind of, I think, worked for most people. And navigate seems to be the word. It does seem like you remain all things to all men, if you like. You you offer a bit of the three monthly, a bit of the monthly, and broaden that range. And and if anything, the well, this this would seem to be the thing that people would, as you say, anything any organisation that's demutualised, the main thing to grumble about your leadership would be the fees going up. Yeah, and and yeah, I'm very very conscious of 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 that because 
you know, businesses don't have you know, a right to just put, put their fees up. Uh, and we exist in a competitive world. And uh, and if you, if you go too far, uh, people are going to find alternatives. Uh, you know, our, our, our users are, are very smart. But at the same time, you know, clearly the world is moving on in terms of what our regulators expect from us. You know, I mean, just a very simple example, you know, information security. Even five years ago, um, you know, we weren't spending a lot on information security. Now it is a standalone department within the LME because you know, we have to keep our market going in the face of uh, a, a growing cyber threat. So clearly, yeah, we have growing costs and many businesses do. So, so I, I, I think what we've had to do is to show that, yeah, yeah we have put feeds up to, to pay for some of this, but, but to demonstrate that there's some more value coming for that. And I'm not saying everyone would agree, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people who, who would say that we've gone too far, but in general, most of our users, you know, who we speak to on a regular basis, uh, you know, they, they, they're never going to say, yeah, you know, high fees are a great thing. But I, I hope they would at least say that they feel there's some greater value that they're getting back from that. Sure. I want to ask you briefly on culture. It seems like that's something else that you've made a, a bit of a stand on over the last couple of years. I mean, the the LME has probably up to date been quite male dominated. I mean, even in the last year or so, there were parties at the Playboy Club and so on. And it feels like you've kind of saying, well, we shouldn't really do this anymore, guys. This is very much uh, something you've stepped up on. I think we are, like it or not, the metals trading world and and the metals industry more more generally you know is seen as a community and the way that any one of us behaves is going to reflect on everyone and yeah you know, i think the vast majority of people um you know are, are like me in that we want to be able to you know go to dinner with friends or go do a podcast like this and say i work in metals and to be proud of that uh, to, to have that be, be seen as a positive thing so, so we all have a responsibility to uphold the, the standards of our of our market uh, and the vast majority of people absolutely absolutely do that and and you know, our members our, our clients you know physical players you know they've done you know, probably far more than, than we have but you know we do have that that central role in the markets we are looked to uh, as a little bit of a, a culture carrier uh, and that's why we were very keen and, and very proud to put out you know, for the first time that LME code of conduct, which we put out before uh, LME week last year, uh, 2019. Uh, and it really set out you know, what for 99% of our industry is pretty obvious anyway, which is absolutely let's go and have fun, right? You know, just people are going to have parties, you know, appropriate con consumption of alcohol, uh, you know, that that's you know, that's absolutely fine. You know, have a bit of fun, but let's make sure that we never do anything in terms of venue or in terms of entertainment or in terms of excessive alcohol that would make any of our colleagues or any of our prospective colleagues feel uneasy or feel excluded. Uh, and, and the positive response to that, you know, just like on responsible sourcing or environmental, you know, the positive response to that has actually been the most pleasing thing because it suggests you know, we're not going out on the limb with that. The vast majority of people uh, see this as absolutely something that we should be doing. 
Just to talk finally about how we come out of this crisis now. Actually, to go back, first of all, you talked about the physical metal that that is it needs to get moved to, to satisfy those those three month contracts. Has there been any snare up? Are there any you know warehouses of, of stuff that's stranded, or or, or is, has that been moved fairly fairly well? No, we've been we've been really impressed by how our warehouse operators um, have been uh, have been able to to keep metal flowing. So we don't actually run the warehouses. We we license uh, warehouse operating companies to do that all around the world. Uh, but they've managed to keep things going. Um, and you know, even in you know countries which have been uh, quite sadly and significantly uh, afflicted by coronavirus, you know, in general the authorities have done a great job of keeping the ports moving because obviously. You know, logistics is important, you know, primarily for food and medical supplies, but but for other things as well. So, so I think globally, uh, authorities have done a good job of, of keeping logistics going, keeping ports open. Uh, and so we, we haven't really seen uh, any any fundamental problems there. And the and the, there are obviously all sorts of things that will happen as as every business goes back to normal. Um, hopefully, what about the ring and the open outcry? Do you think that everyone that was there will want to rush back in, or are some of your guys and your members thinking now? Oh, actually, now we've been forced to do it through the um, the tech platform. It's not as bad as we thought. We can set the prices this way in the future. Yeah, so, so that, that's a great point. We have shown that electronic pricing works. Uh, and so that, that means that we're in a, a really good position in that we've got you know, a floor that we know works well. It's worked well for 145 years. Uh, we've got electronic pricing that okay, it's only been working for six weeks, but we haven't had any real problems with it. Uh, and, and so we've got both options. We did say when we moved out of the ring that this was not an attempt to close the floor by stealth. Uh, you know, a lot of exchanges have closed their trading floors because they believe that electronic trading will give them uh, higher volumes. And I think it was really important that we we said that wasn't what we were doing. So we've given a commitment that we'll go back to the ring. Uh, and obviously, we have to stand by that commitment. Uh, anything else would be would be wrong, uh, assuming the members want to come back. Uh, but, but, you know, I started off by talking about you know, the, the kind of social responsibility. Um, I, I think we cannot bring the, the ring back until we're able to do that uh, in a way that's consistent with, uh, you know, with with best practice health guidance. Uh, and, you know, it's difficult to see a socially distanced ring. So it may be that, you know, we are going to be waiting for, uh, for a vaccine or, or a treatment or, or whatever it might be. You know, we would hate to imperil anyone's, anyone's safety. Um, I think, you know, we'll have very much a phased and voluntary return to work and i wouldn't be surprised if we did it you know said look you know tell us if you want to come back if you want to keep working from home if you had sort of half half our people come say, say we'd like to come back you know that'd work quite well because then we can space out the office uh with half the half the floor density um and uh, and that would, would probably be the right way to do it um in in these initial phases so you know it, it's early days uh, obviously you, you know we've got to see where where the government comes out on this but i think it's going to be very phased and it's got to respect the uh, the desires of the uh, of the workforce and do you think going forward you will lead it differently I don't think that there's a, a fundamental difference, you know, in terms of leading in in a crisis or before a crisis or after a crisis. Uh, I think the underlying characteristics that are expected of, of a leader are pretty much 
approach the same, particularly I say in in the world today, where you know I do strongly believe in this sort of principle of servant leadership. You know, y- you are there primarily to help people do their jobs better. So you know, I, I don't think that fundamental philosophy is going to change. Um, clearly, on a day to day basis, yeah, it is going to change. You know, you're not going to be able to see people and walk around the office and, and stop by and say how things are going. You know, if, if more people are working from home, you're going to have to be more understanding of that, change shift patterns, etc., cetera, uh, to, to keep pressure off public transport. So, so at a micro level, it's going to change. But I think at a macro level, what people are looking for from a leader, which is, can you provide me with the platform, uh, with the stability, with the reassurance to let me get on and do my job? that's going to be the same and that's that's what we're here for great stuff matt chamberlain thanks so much for the conversation no problem thanks for listening to this episode of leading with james ashton please rate and review us if you like what you've heard you can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes on apple podcasts spotify or through leadingpod.com they include kate maver the chief executive of english heritage talking here about the spending decisions behind preserving stonehenge dover castle hadrian's wall and other historic gems. Previously, the way we assessed the sites was basically working out what it would cost to deal with every single defect we could find. And so you're faced with this huge bill which you're never going to get on top of. And I draw the comparison with other charities, you know, who might have the aim of ending poverty or bringing clean water to every Mm. village. The job's never done. And, you know, that I feel quite comfortable about that. We'll never have everything absolutely in tip-top repair from that point of view. But to prioritise, we need to start with the basics. What is the most historically significant element of this big site? Because that's what Mm. we're looking after. It's unique. It's not replicated anywhere else. So that has to come first.